I'm Jenny Jones and this is Jen's Green Jam. For those who don't know me, I'm the Green Party peer in the House of Lords, where I do my best to hold the government to account on a whole range of issues. In my podcasts, I aim to encourage a debate based around the green perspective on various topics in British politics. And each month, I bring on a guest to dissect an issue which is important to me or to the Green Party. And at the end of the podcast, me and my guest will do some myth-busting by discussing how to counter some of the arguments you might hear in the media or on the doorstep. Now, with my green credentials in mind, it might come as a surprise that my guest today is a Conservative member of the House of Lords. But I'm very pleased to welcome my friend Chris Holmes to discuss diversity in the workplace. Good morning, Chris. Morning. Chris represented the UK in four Paralympic Games, bringing home a total of nine gold, five silver and one bronze medal. The bronze medal when he, uh, he got when he was 16 years old. He won six gold medals in one Games and he's broken world records and is rightly called one of Britain's greatest Paralympians. Now, he took this amazing record further during the 2012 London Olympics when he was the director of Paralympic Integration and it's thanks to him that the London Paralympics became such a sensational event. And so it's with all this in mind that Chris and I will be talking about taking some of that Paralympic spirit and applying it to wider society, which is what Chris has been working on for some years. Uh, So Chris, welcome today and thank you for joining me. And you've actually brought somebody with you. Yes, under the desk we have my guide dog, Lottie. Uh, Fabulous uh, partnership that we've had for the last seven years and when I entered the House of Lords in 2013 she was the first guide dog ever in the House of Lords. Which oh, I think before Blunkett? In the House of Lords, yeah. I think oh, of it, course. Eight, 800 years of no guide dogs in the House of Lords then like buses two years later another guide dog comes along so <laughs> I, I think that's what we call progress. And they're all black Labradors aren't they? No variety of dogs. Uh, Lottie's uh, Black Lab Retriever Cross uh, but also golden labs and golden retrievers and uh, German shepherds are also used. But uh, yes, for those of you who just have the audio, who don't have the visual uh, part of this podcast, Lottie's a very sweet black Labrador retriever cross. <laughs> she's, I think she's the better part of you, Chris, actually. that's. Uh, I, I know that's the case. Yeah. Um, so can you start by telling us how you became blind? So I had a pretty regular upbringing. Grew up in the Midlands in Kidderminster. Went to the local comprehensive school, which was described as the worst comprehensive in the county. (laughs) I'd like to think that some of the things I did helped to give it that reputation. And just had a pretty standard education, really. Woodwork, metalwork, technical drawing. No real aspiration for us. But even with that, when I was 14, I went to bed one night. And when I woke up, I couldn't see. I'd lost my sight overnight. um, Not expected. And... At that point, I didn't know the words diversity or inclusion, but I absolutely knew instinctively that it was those principles that were behind them, which I would need to get people around me to see just if I could get through that. So how did you start swimming? Why did that become an interest? I always swam since being very young. My mum taught me when I was two. And... At the, at the time I lost my sight, I was already a pretty good swimmer. I was a national age group swimmer, but also did a lot of other sports, uh, running, uh, cycling, uh, played rugby, cricket, football for the school. But after losing my sight, I just figured, well, let's, let's see if I can get back in the pool. I, I knew how to swim. I had no idea how to swim, not being able to see. So I had to get in, relearn a load of stuff from scratch and just you know, have a sense of how far I could take it, really. 
Oh, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, I'd like to talk to you more about your Olympic role, but quite honestly, it's actually what you've done since stopping um, being a participant in the Games. Uh, for example, I'd like to ask you a bit about your role in the 2012 Olympics and Paralympics, because we didn't know each other then, but um, it was obviously um, a crucial part of the Games here in London. It was incredibly fortunate. I got involved with the bid. Even before the government were involved in 2002, we had <clears throat> a plan of what the Games could be, both Olympic and Paralympic, but nobody had any sense that we could even win the bid, never mind put on the Games in 2012. And it was the most sensational 11 years of my life, taking the Games through the bid, through to 2012, and just what we were all able to achieve as a team was some of the best work I've ever done in my life. So you worked with Ken Livingston and with Boris Johnson? It's extraordinary. Uh, along the journey, and the most important person, Tessa Jow, who was the Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport at the time of the bid, it was her who convinced the Cabinet, it was her who convinced Gordon Brown to get it across the line, to enable the government to back the bid in the first place. So worked incredibly closely with Tessa and the Labour government and Ken as mayor, then obviously moving through with Boris as mayor and Cameron taking over as Prime Minister in 2010. So I think that, as much as anything, demonstrates the coalition that we were able to gather around the Games, that all parties were really supportive right from the bid all the way through, right through into legacy. Um, Tessa d died last year, of course. I mean, she's, she's much missed. She was an amazing an, person. An, an amazing, amazing politician, an amazing person. And despite her extraordinary, pivotal role to London 2012, in one of her last interviews, she said the thing that she was most proud of was the sure start work that she was involved in. I think that is the absolute measure of her as a person and as a politician, and she's much missed in our house and much missed around the country and the world. Indeed. Now, how did you reframe the Paralympics? Because in 2012, it felt like it was a lot more prominent and inspirational than it had been in previous years. I, I went along to um, one of the races, and uh, I, it was the day that George Osborne was booed, and, so, and that was quite a seminal moment as well. So for me to go to my first Paralympics and to hear Chancellor of the Exchequer booed was great. It, it's, we, we aim to... Um deliver for all the people who came <laughs> to, uh, to spectate, Jenny. We, we knew you were there. From the outset, I believed that we had a real opportunity with both the Olympics and the Paralympics. And so much of what people experienced in the summer of 2012, and indeed since then, emanated from some of the earliest decisions that we made when we were bidding, not least to have Olympic Games and Paralympic Games planned and delivered by the same organising committee, never been done before. To have access, diversity and inclusion as a golden thread running through everything that we did, Olympic and Paralympic. Not because we had to, not because the IOC were putting any pressure on us to do that, quite the contrary. But we believed that if we had access, diversity and inclusion as a golden thread running through everything that we did in the planning and delivery of the Games, that would be the golden thread that enabled good games to be great games. 
You see, it sounds so obvious now because we did it and it was amazing. But where did those <coughs> ideas first come from? I mean, when you were included, were those ideas already there? No, there was a huge amount of work to do and it was a, a tiny group of us initially who were part of that bid. And as you may remember, we had an almost entirely negative British press. Now, for people listening, I know it's a difficult concept to get your head around a negative British press, but uh, it was largely a negative British press and a largely sceptical British public. But just a few of us, a handful of us, believed that if we could get the bid right and if we could win in Singapore in 2005, we had a real opportunity, a moment in time, to do something so special with the Olympic Games and the Paralympic Games. And at the heart of it, it would be that sense of an inclusive culture, an inclusive game, so we could truly deliver on that mission statement to use the power of the Games to inspire people, particularly young people, but to inspire all people right around the world. And access, diversity, inclusion were absolutely the golden thread which ran through all of that, but it was, as you rightly hint at, a massive journey to go on, a huge amount of partnership working, of persuasion, of cajoling, of building relationships in every aspect of what we needed to deliver the game. So easy to say, incredibly complex to do, and has certainly had never been done beforehand and thus far has never been done since. Well, I was going to say you've set a standard that others can only dream of at the moment. Um, I have to confess that I was one of the people who was very, very sceptical about our ability to put on a Games. Once we'd got the bid, I supported it completely. I decided, all right, we've got the bid and then we have to make it as wonderful as possible. But I certainly didn't, I didn't really understand how, just how wonderful it could be. And that was, I think, it's, it's understandable why there was so much scepticism as well. We didn't have, as a nation, a particularly good recent track record in pulling off Le Grand Projet. If you look at the Wembley debacle, if you look at when we won the rights to stage the International Athletics World Championships, but we had to give the games back because we couldn't even get the stadium together at Pickett's Lock. So we didn't have a great track record in this, but what was extraordinary was taking people to East London, to the Lower Lee Valley, and telling them the story of what we wanted to do there. Not just to have a sensational summer of sport, a golden summer of sport in the summer of 2012, not just to have the most accessible, diverse, inclusive games for all who would come, for all who would watch, but to really demonstrate what could be done in terms of transformation and creating a whole new, sustainable, extraordinary community in East London. And it was the most powerful physical example of what we were trying to get at. For anybody who went to that space, in the early 2000s, it was the land that time forgot. Toxic, polluted, derelict, violent. Now, such a fabulous feeling. It feels different to any other part of London. It is 
a community, sustainable housing, a community which is looking to the future, lots of tech companies there, BT Sport are out there, universities are out there, it's vibrant, it feels good. None of that would have been possible without the vision and the mission that we got on with the 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games. I'd wonder if the vision, perhaps, that, that was exemplified by those um, Olympics and Paralympics has slipped away a little, bu a little bit and that <clears throat> we're not really that good anymore at understanding just how important it is to have diversity in the workplace and to make the world more equitable for disabled people. I think it was an extraordinary mission to be on with the Games. Bear in mind when we started, I wanted everything to be rooted in research, both quantitative and qualitative research. But <coughs> quantitative research told me that the best any previous Games had done was a 40% ticket sell. Qualitative research told me in some of the groups, people said, why would I buy a ticket to that? I spend my life trying to avoid those people. Oh. And this is 21st century Britain. So no nation, no community should uh, be deluded as to where they are on anything in terms of inclusion. We're all on a, on a part of that journey. But I knew we had to sell all the tickets if we were going to make this a game changer. I knew we had to get all the Olympic sponsors, also Paralympic sponsors, if we were going to make it a game changer. I knew we had to do major broadcast deals in this country and right around the world. None of that had ever been done before, but the potential was there, and it was the potential to really connect people with the Paralympics, the games of the possible. So to do that and to sell all the tickets and to have all Olympic sponsors, also Paralympic sponsors, and to do a fabulous broadcast deal with Channel 4, the largest broadcast deal ever done for the games, and have deals replicated right around the world, to not just have thousands, but to have hundreds of millions of new spectators, new fans watching Paralympic sport. That changed so much. But as you rightly identify, these are moments in time to drive cultural attitudinal change is difficult enough. But to sustain it and continue to build, that isn't just a mission for an Olympic and a Paralympic Games. That's a mission for each and every one of us in everything that we do. And that, of course, is what you're doing at the moment. I'm going to go off on a slight tangent um, briefly, because after your incredibly successful career as a sportsman, you went on to become a solicitor, and that's obviously a job which involves huge amounts of paperwork <coughs> and reading. So how are you able to actually adapt your workplace to perform at your best? I mean, I know you have the most phenomenal memory, but is that all it took? It was a massive challenge, and when I was going for interviews at law firms, I could tell within the first 30 seconds as to whether this was a real interview and there was a real possibility, not inevitability, but a real possibility of me landing a job with them or whether they were just going through the motions and they had no intention of even considering it. And the reason why... I ended up at Ashurst Morris Crisp was because I had a really tough interview, but I had a really great interview where I knew it was a real possibility. And at the end of it, the partner said, we like your approach, we like your papers. We've never had a blind lawyer at the firm 
tell us what we can do to make it possible. Not to give you an advantage, not to put you in a different place to everybody else. Tell us what we can do to enable you to be on the same start line, to be able to be judged with all of your peers who'll be starting at the same time. Open, honest, clear, communicating, wanting to make it happen, positive attitude, fabulous, and it was a tremendous, tremendous experience being at Ashes Morris Crisp. Yes, it was incredible hard work. Many, many evenings, nights and weekends disappeared, but the learning curve and the clients and the experience of delivering for your clients as a lawyer was just a tremendous time. So what did your company actually have to do to make it easy for you? Or not easy, but possible? So what I discovered when I lost my sight when I was 14, there was obviously an extraordinary emotional component to that. It came out of a clear blue sky and I had to relearn everything at that stage. But one of the most essential things I learned almost instantly at that point was, yes, there's the emotional component, but if, and it's not in any sense to underestimate how difficult and how much of a mission it is to get over that emotional component, but if you can get through that with the support of many, many people, then the reality is so much else of what you need is just practical problems equals you need practical solutions. So law is incredibly paper-based, so need to get it all on computer. So I got computer system that I've been using anyway, which uh, just a regular computer. When I lost my sight, I taught, taught myself to touch type, so I'd be able to put the information in. You don't use Braille, do you? No. No, just because luckily, Technology was already coming through by the time I lost my sight. I can read a little bit of Braille, but I have to tell you, it's pretty slow. <laughs> pretty slow. So I taught myself to touch type. Just use a regular laptop, and there's a piece of software on that laptop that converts whatever I type or whatever is there, emails, whatever it is, Word documents, converts that to speech, just wear a little headphone so it reads everything out. So the law firm got me that software on the computer, and in a sense didn't require too much more than that if stuff came in in paper form they got the scanning software for the team to be able to scan documents in and what was interesting again it was a learning for many many people in the firm that by scanning those documents in that benefits everybody in the team because everybody could have it instantly electronically so it really is a key point that again I learned very early on and completely believe in that if you make a change to whatever it is, whether it's to communication, whether it's to the physical environment, if you make a change which benefits disabled people, everybody benefits from that change. Well that's true of course because uh, we're also all getting older so every time we do easier pavements to get up and down and all that sort of thing, it benefits the whole of society. Um, just, I'm just curious, so if I email you, what does my voice sound like? Which it's interesting because when I first started with this software years ago, it sounded quite a robotic robotic voice. But when you get used to using it, you generally hear the person's voice if you know them, who's reading it, or just almost no voice. So it becomes very similar to if you were just reading the email yourself. So it's funny how it become the, the electronic voice 
blends into the background really and it's just like a, a reading experience oh that's that that's quite fascinating um so uh, what what sort of advice would you give to other people who are struggling to get reasonable adjustments made to their workplace i mean this is work you're doing at the moment isn't it completely and i say to anybody in whatever the situation is don't let anybody tell you that you can't don't let anybody get away with putting barriers putting blockers imposing their bias conscious or unconscious upon you keep pushing through and absolutely without questions at times it's one heck of a struggle and it feels like you are trying to go through solid rock shouldn't be like that absolutely it shouldn't but currently in so many situations it is so you've just got to keep trying to smash into it go around it definitely get people around you who can support who'll be willing to help that's the great thing there are people who will discriminate who will dismiss who will put you in a particular box not great but there are so so many more people who are open-minded willing to help willing to support may not know the right way to go about it but are absolutely up for helping and enabling people to succeed so it's not a solitary pursuit this life business get people alongside and then absolutely stuff can be achieved and as we continue the discriminators the deniers the biases the blockers the barrier constructors will become less and less and less is it as you've um you've been referring to problems that disabled people face but actually women often face exactly the same so that's very good advice for all of us it completely um, it, it, again it's that point it's none of this is specific to disabled people there's specific stuff which is helpful and assistive in enabling and empowering for disabled people, hence the reasonable adjustments legislation. But the reality is, life isn't fair. And if you try and go through life with a sense of it's not fair, that is absolutely true. But it's not going to get you through because the reality is, older people, younger people, women, sometimes men, disabled people, BAME. There's so many ways if people choose to seek to exclude, to limit, to keep down, that can happen. And the reality is the means of getting through that is through collaboration, through connection, through communication. That, that's how we get stuff done. So um, do you feel that the Equality Act is robust enough to ensure that people get the sort of support they need to actually lead successful careers? It's a good piece of legislation and it's good that it structures the reasonable adjustments uh, duties. It's good that it structures a lot through protected characteristics. Two things probably to say about it. Firstly, it's a means rather than an end. Protected characteristics are important and they're helpful, but it's to go behind that if we're truly to 
enable and create an inclusive environment, an inclusive culture, an inclusive society. So I think the Act is well structured. I think it's helpful. There are often an obvious questions around the level of enforcement, the role of a number of regulators, the level of awareness of the Act, not least the public sector equality duty. But again, that's all true, but we need to do even more than that and to enable everybody to have an understanding of what it means to act in an inclusive way, to be inclusive attitudinally, the institutions, the organisations, the cities, the communities, the built environment, everything. Because if you could get to that point, then you'd have to be so, so less concerned about the legislation because that approach would just enable and empower so much and so many of the current issues will be swept away now obviously in the words of John Lennon at that point you may say I'm a dreamer but I'm not the only one I think that's a point that we never get to but that's the the point of the journey and everything we learn is in that journey and in that struggle so it's important to have legislation and for people to be aware of it and for people to be able to exercise their rights through it as we keep moving along that journey and keep becoming more of the society that we always could have been, always should have been, but you know, all too often we fall short. I take your point that we all need to be aware, but quite often we're not aware. You know, we don't see the biases until we're challenged on them. Um, and I don't want to embarrass you too much as a Conservative, but in fact, everything you've been saying is more or less Green Party policy. You know, we, we have adopted the social model of disability, which says that people um, should not be discriminated against in any way um, by their surroundings, by the workplace or whatever. So... You can sign up to the Green Party any time you like. It, it would be obviously something to consider, but it would, it would feel quite uh, sad if I signed up to the Green Party just at the point that you signed up to the Conservative Party <laughs> and we'd be, uh, we'd be like a weather vane as uh, one comes out, the other one goes in. So, the, But you're right. It's never it, going to happen well, on my side. Ne I just want you to know. Never say never. But the reality is the social model is a really effective model which should underpin an approach, should underpin policy, irrespective of party politics, for sure. Because in reality, enabling, empowering, flourish, possibility, potential to come through, for people to be able to run whatever race they choose, to be enabled onto the same start line, not to be given an unfair advantage, but to be enabled onto the same start line, that has nothing to do with Conservative, Green party politics at all. It has absolutely everything to do with being born human. You've put me on my place. All right. Now, um, you mentioned enforcement brief briefly, but do, do you feel there's an access to justice issue? Because it costs a lot and it's very difficult taking a case to an employment tribunal, and that must be even harder for disabled people. I think that there's a real question about access to justice, and that comes in a number of forms. As you rightly identify, there is a resource question. And alongside that question of knowledge, awareness, of how to be able to exercise one's rights. That's why the Equality 
and Human Rights Commission has such a robust regulator to enable people to understand, you know, it's understanding what legislation's there in, in the first instance, then absolutely having everything in place to enable people to have true access to justice because you can put almost anything that you choose on the statute book and of course that's incredibly important to pass legislation as we do here but it's how that legislation plays out how it's enforced how it's interpreted out there in society in the courts in the legal system that makes a difference to people on a daily basis again back to that issue so much of what's at the heart of that is practical problems and a practical solution because if there's a step into a shop that may seem quite a small thing but if you're a wheelchair user and you're unable to access that shop because of that step well that step might as well be the height of the Himalayas I've got a friend um, who uses a wheelchair um, who lives just near me and I've been trying to get a step uh, taken out and a ramp put in for months and months so that she can visit me, you know, because, of course, um, if she's got a couple of very strong people helping her, she can get up the step, but on her own or with my help, it's absolutely impossible. So, you know, there's all sorts of ramifications about she can't say, you know, she can't come round to my flat um, to have a cup of coffee because she can't get up a step, and the step is only about four inches high. Yeah, um, d d so. discrimination, exclusion can come in so many formats, and we've talked about, you know, with... London 2012, with a lot of the work in Parliament, how we're on a journey and seeking to move forward on a lot of these issues. What's at least as significant to grasp is how not only does the journey never end, but that already secured rights or practical realities don't assume that any of that is there in perpetuity and I think shared space is a really good example of that so-called shared space this is where a previous road layout will be changed to take away the pavements take away the curb stones take away the traffic lights take away the markings take away the traffic signals in the belief extraordinary belief that then all the users of that space will have a far better experience of using well, it. Well, th th they'll all behave responsibility, including people who are driving around in a tonne of metal. Completely. So it, it, it fundamentally misunderstands the whole nature of power, ultimately, to have toddlers and tankers, buses and blind people in that same so-called shared space. Utterly ridiculous. Architectural folly, planning conceit, but is being rolled out up and down the country as we speak and some really uh, crass examples of it not too far away from where we are today. Uh, I'm going to move on now to some of the myths that we hear. I mean, we'll call them myths. Other people will call them, you know, sensible ways of looking at the problem. So there's four things. Um, uh, people might say reasonable adjustments are too expensive. What would you say? It's re really well constructed, the legislation around reasonable adjustments. And it really is at the heart of that word reasonable. So for a small independent retailer, for example, it would be unreasonable 
for them to have to put in, say, a £100,000 lift. But what would be entirely reasonable, perhaps, what could enable access and inclusion, would be to put in some form of ramp, some form of adjustment which would be reasonable for the circumstances of that retail. So it's quite well constructed and there's no sense ever that reasonable adjustments could be burdensome, onerous or put anybody out of business. It's not how it's constructed. On top of that, what I say, that's the legislation. But what one would hope through communication, through getting into a dialogue with a retailer, with a leisure facility, whatever it may be, to have a discussion as to let's go beyond that and let's have a think about how we can enable this space to be inclusive, way beyond the legislation, and to make it an inclusive experience. So yes, the physical environment matters, but what about the approach of the staff, of the employees? What about posters on the wall? Is there an alternative means of access? Now, thinking about every beat point of that experience, and it's such a more positive way of framing this, absolutely based on the legislation, but an approach which starts from the individual, from the customer. This isn't about doing favours, there's a business imperative for doing this. Having an approach which says, how do we make every point on this journey of this experience absolutely inclusive? And then what operationally do we need to do to achieve that? It's something so well worth doing. Is it simple? No, it's not simple. But is it overly complex? It's not that either. Well, um, my next thing was about uh, the fact that people have said equalities legislation puts too much burden on employers, but you're suggesting actually it, it doesn't because if you have a happy, effective workforce, um, that's uh, actually that's, that's beneficial to the employer. Whether one is a disabled person, BAME, trans, whatever, even on the most basic terms, why would you want to pay somebody 100% of their salary, but as a result of the non-inclusive environment, the non-inclusive culture, they're only able to give 50, 40, 30% of their potential. You're paying them 100% of their salary, even on that basis alone. And of course, there's so, so much more on top of that. You would want to have an environment where everybody can flourish, people want to be. It's such a simple idea. Look after your employees, they'll look after your customers or your clients, whichever the organisation is, it makes no odds, private, public, third sector, and the thing just works. Well, that's my next myth um, that you hear, that people should just find a job which suits their individual needs and abilities. Everybody should have the opportunity to run whatever race, paint whatever picture, do whatever role they choose. Shoving people in particular roles based on prejudice, preconceptions, even if well-intended, which oftentimes it may be, anything should be possible and anything is possible with that sense of an inclusive approach. No preconceptions, no assumptions. Ask the question, absolutely. 
but provide, enable that environment, that culture, and let all of that untapped talent, because ultimately what we're talking here is nothing more than how to unleash talent. And for a whole heap of reasons, there's a lot of conversation about austerity, about resources. I understand that. But what about a conversation which goes to the heart of all of that talent which is kept down, kept out, unenabled, unempowered? What potential would we have as communities, as cities, as a country, if we even got somewhere down the track of enabling, empowering all of that talent? That's an excellent point, that we are wasting all sorts of opportunities and, and uh, you know, in not allowing people to be as good as they possibly can be. Um, my last one is the sort of whinge that you hear from people sometimes, uh, who say, oh, I don't get any changes made so that, you know, I can do you know, my job, so why should other people? Yeah, and that, you hear that a lot. You hear the, well, where, where's the equality for the white middle-aged man? Well, what do you need? What do you want? The whole purpose of equalities legislation, the whole purpose of reasonable adjustments is nothing to do with unfair advantage, nothing to do with putting somebody 30 metres ahead in the race of life. It's nothing more than enabling, empowering people to be on that same start line and then it's down to them. Exactly the point that was made to me when I started off in the law. Ashes Morris Crisp are an incredibly successful law firm, but they are not in the business, nor should they be in the business, of doing anybody any special favours, to judge me differently to my mates who I started with on the same day. They weren't saying, when we get to the end of the year and you have your annual review, you can have done less billable hours. They're saying, what do we need to put in place? What do you need to be able to be in the same race as all of your peers who are starting on the same day? Nothing more, nothing less. And again, it's nothing to do with employment, it's nothing to do with work. It simply should be everything to do with being human. Well, Chris, you've had uh, two incredible careers as a Paralympian, but also as a lawyer, obviously, and now you're in a new third career here in the House of Lords and working um, to promote diversity in the workplace. And I can only say good luck. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming. Thank you.